Hello, my name's Lawrence Brown, and I'm a partner in our global data protection and privacy team here at Simmons & Simmons. Thank you for joining us all today for our session on data digitalization, how not to get it perfectly wrong. Let me begin by introducing you to our panel. So today I'm joined by Sasha Kuhn, who is a litigator in our Dusseldorf office, TMT specialist Jingwan Shi from our Shenzhen office, David McDonald, who focuses on disputes and employment matters in the Middle East, and Morgan van Emmingham, who is a senior legal engineer with Simmons Wavelength. What we're planning to do is to run a scenario-based session focusing on the data-related do's, don'ts, and possibilities that arise out of digitalization projects. We'll be showing three short videos to set the scene, followed by a quick chat about each scenario. So, Let's crack on with scenario one. Uh, okay, Sonsi, I, I want everybody back to work five days a week, um, and I don't want any excuses. Okay, I hear you, Eddie, but you know we need to check. You know our plans meet the regulations across our international network, and uh, you know for for people to get back to work safely. Well, look, Sonsi, people can go to the pub. People can go to football matches. They can come back to work. It's simple. Yeah, sure. Uh, in England, it's possible, but it's not the same in every country. You know, sometimes you have to get vaccinated, get an health pass. Um, it's 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 not as easy as it seems. You know, we need to look at the different regulation across the different countries we operate. Sansi, Sansi, no more excuses. Just get it done. Yeah, this is exactly the scenario that we are seeing in many organizations right now, uh, getting back to the office and how to deal with the, with the challenges, um, knowing who's in the office, who's not, who's working from home, who's vaccinated, who's not, who has been tested, who has not been. And obviously, this is one of the projects where you need to work uh, with a certain amount of digitalization. Uh, just recently saw one client who tried to do it with print out Excel sheets. Um, not a big surprise. Um, it didn't really work. Um, so this is a project where you need digitalization. Um, at the same time, however, it is, as we have already seen in that short video, a project where you keep track of the various legal requirements in a number of jurisdictions. Um, which might come from data protection law, which might also come from employment law, which might come from a number of uh, legal sources. David, maybe to start with uh, the legal scenario in your jurisdiction. Thanks, Sasha. Um, the UAE is a relatively complex jurisdiction in that it has multiple layers of legal systems. The federal law applies throughout the UAE, but each of the seven Emirates also have their own laws. There's also the financial free zones, the DIFC and ADGM, which have separate civil laws which are more similar to English law. So if a company has branches in the UAE in both the DIFC and also onshore Dubai, then two different legal systems must be considered. Currently, there's no federal UAE or onshore Dubai data protection law, and requirements around processing data come from a mix of sector-specific laws. However, it's recently been announced that a new UAE data protection law will be introduced, but we don't have many details yet. 
as things stand in the UAE onshore, it's generally not advisable to collect and store health data unless you've got consent from the individuals. In the financial free zones, such as the DIFC and ADGM, the position is more clear due to the introduction of the DIFC um, and ADGM data protection laws, which closely aligns with the GDPR. Data relating to health and COVID-19 status is classed as special category data. I'll now pass to Jim Wang. Thanks, David. In China, this is generally doable because under the new Chinese Personal Information Protection Law, we call it PIPL, there are two new legal bases added which can be relevant here, one being compliance with um, legal obligations of the companies and the other one being in response to public health emergencies. In reality, digitalization is widely adopted in China, especially in cities. For example, each of us has a health code which, available, which is available on our smartphones, which shows vaccination status, test results, etc. So employers in high-risk regions or at high-risk timing, high-risk as notified by the local government from time to time, can check this health code when admitting people into the workplace, but usually do not retain such data. So again, it is doable in China, but just ensure that you are not collecting data beyond necessary so as to fulfill your safety obligations as an employer. Now, shall we turn to scenario two, please? Hi, all. Um, really exciting news. I've just got off the phone from a big client in Dubai, and uh, she's going to issue us really shortly with an RFP for potentially one of the biggest projects we've ever had. Um, I talked to her about the RFP response and there's quite a lot of requirements including a list of all of our employees worldwide and the, the diversity stats associated with those. Is there anyone that can help me with that? Anyone in the London team? I think it's going to be a bit of a nightmare to gather that sort of information to be honest. Um, I've got a feeling we're also not going to be able to provide that from a legal point of view. And uh, I think there are, are sort of different data protection regulations from different countries around the world. I totally agree. We'll need to ask the Works Council here in Germany, but I expect we will also have a problem. Likewise, we've got this new data protection law in China, and I just don't know what that means for requests like this. But guys, I don't, I don't think you understood what I was saying. This client's just called me. It's potentially the biggest job we've ever had. Who can help? We need to put this response in and we need to win. So what we saw in that video on our second scenario must be a familiar scene across businesses around the world. Of course, they're absolutely right that data can't just be transferred without further consideration. There are rules and regulations internationally on that. Sasha, turning to you first, it's been a busy year on the EU front in this area following the SHREMS 2 decision in July 2020. Please let us know what the key actions to take in this scenario are. Yeah, uh, gladly so. Maybe just one point to, to, to mention before going into these details. One of the things which we have just seen in this video from my perspective and which should not be underestimated is that before we consider transferring data to jurisdictions outside of our home jurisdiction, there is always the question whether we need to transfer personal data. I think that's a very important point. When we are talking about, for example, diversity requirements in RFPs, um, as an example here in this case, 
Um, in most cases, um, the recipient won't be interested in knowing whether uh, employee A or B is of this or that uh, ethnical background or age or sex or whatever. Um, so we can very well work with anonymized data, which um, helps us with many of the data protection requirements, as you know. Now, if we are going to transfer personal data to another jurisdiction, then I'm always very glad when we are transferring the data to a jurisdiction for which the EU Commission, that is talking from a EU perspective, has issued a so-called adequacy decision. You know, there are some countries in the world where the EU Commission says that the data protection standards are different, but comparable to the standards in Europe. Um, you have countries such as Canada, as Israel, and for example, for the UK post-Brexit, uh, an adequacy decision, um, all be limited in time has been issued. So that makes life much easier. Um, in some cases, you won't find an adequacy decision. Um, in some cases, you will have to work with standard contractual clauses. Um, if so, please bear in mind that there are the new standard contractual clauses, uh, which you will need to apply, which are somewhat different from the old um, standard contractual clauses and which require a little bit more input, a little bit more work when applying them. Um, but more importantly, you will have to carry out a data um, transfer impact assessment, um, which basically means that you will have to look at the law and the data protection practice in the receiving jurisdiction, compare it with your home jurisdiction. So for example, with the EU or with, with, uh, with the UK, for example, and then you will have to look at the specific types of data that you want to transfer and the purposes of the data transfer and so on. And you will have to come up with um, additional measures, uh, which could be of a technical nature, could also be of a contractual nature, several ways to, to deal with it. But you must have this kind of documentation in place um, before starting the data transfers. Um, Lawrence, I, I just mentioned um, passing by Brexit. Um, what is the situation looking like in the UK? Thanks, Sasha. So, the, I mean, the UK position is very similar to the EU, is the bottom line. We have the UK GDPR here now rather than the EU GDPR. But certain aspects of our law on international transfers are under consultation. So, for example, you mentioned adequacy decisions in the EU. We're going to have a similar scheme in the UK, but the countries that are on it and the process they have to go through is under consultation at the moment. And that's quite closely linked to the UK's trade agenda as well. Similarly, we have uh, forms of data transfer agreements, standard contractual clauses that can be used now, but there are new forms under consultation. And there's also a possibility that there is a uh, UK addendum to the EU standard contractual clauses that can be used to convert them for use for the UK GDPR, which I think is a really useful instrument to use. It's also clear from UK regulatory guidance that transfer impact assessments are needed, but the details of what those involve are under consultation. Now, what I'd suggest is that people should do transfer impact assessments in the same way as they do for the EU. They should incorporate provisions that apply um, where UK data protection laws apply into their contracts. And also, in the light of the consultation process that I was just talking about, watch this space. On to you, David. What, what's the position in the UAE? Um, there was a new DIFC law. What impact would that and the other requirements in the region have in this scenario? 
Yeah, so uh, the DIFC has a list of countries with adequate data protection regimes, which covers most of the EEA countries and UK, as well as the ADGM. Data transfers to these jurisdictions are permitted. For countries that are not on this list, which includes UAE onshore and other GCC countries, the model clauses prepared by the DIFC data commissioner should be used, although these are not currently SECs as defined in the GDPR. In the UAE onshore jurisdictions, as I said before, there is no data protection regime, so no transfer agreements in place. Generally, in this case, the penal code should be followed, which requires consent from individuals to transfer their data inside or outside the UAE. Should a transfer of data from the London office to a UAE branch be considered, the location will determine which rules apply. At present, the UK is reviewing the DIFC as a top priority for adequacy status. It's hoped that it will be granted as DIFC law is similar to GDPR. For the UAE onshore, there's no plans to review the adequacy status, meaning that other safeguards for transfer will need to be considered, as Lawrence has discussed. I'll now pass uh, back to Lawrence. Thanks, David. Uh, Jingwen, over to you. There's a new uh, China data protection law, the PIPL that you mentioned earlier, in, in place from next month. What, what would that require in this scenario? Thank you, Lawrence. Um, the legal obligations are fairly complex around cross-border data transfer in China, focusing mostly on the data transferer. In very short terms, number one, you need to obtain separate consent from the data subjects. Number two, you need to do DPIA data protection impact assessment. Number three, you need to probably do sign a Chinese version of the standard contractual clauses, which template is going to be published by the legislator pretty soon. And number four, you probably need to sign to do a security assessment, depending on the nature of the data transfer, the volume of the data transferred, and the specific sector which the data transfer is in. And finally, just be minded, the new law, um, Lawrence, you just mentioned, PIPL, also requires the transferers to ensure that overseas transferee must achieve an equivalent protection as required under the PIPL. So far, it's not super clear whether this is going to develop into something which is similar to the EDPB guidance after Shrimps 2 decision or there will be something like adequacy decision. But this is definitely something to watch out. Now, we have talked a lot about data protection, but data optimization is also another really important aspect of digitalization. Let's take a look at scenario three, which gives us an insight into the life of a busy in-house legal team and sets the scene for a discussion around how data can be used to deliver positive change. Morning, Vicky. Morning, Alex. Hope you're having a good week. Um, uh, thank you for uh, the updates earlier on, but I thought we'd just have a catch up and um, see what's been going on this week. Do we, do we go first? Go for it. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, no surprise here. We're, we're swamped, playing catch up, uh, having, you know, bring the team in probably over the weekend to um, to do some stuff. 
it's a bit tough. We've um, we had a request early in the week, but um, but it wasn't spotted um, till Friday, which is um, you know bad timing when we're trying to keep our heads over water and everything else that we've got going on. So um, so it's tough going. I'm sorry about that request. It came into our team via email, but it wasn't really on our wheelhouse and should have been directed to the corporate team. Hence, we missed it. Yeah, no, I know. I, I mean, it's just we're under increasing pressure. It just didn't get forwarded. So, um, so you know, we missed it. But now we're we're scrambling to get this done. We've got everything else that's going on. And my worry is that this isn't just a one-time thing. Um, it, it, it's more work that comes in and there's more risk that things are going to get missed and, and, um, and, and it can happen again. So I think there's a couple of things. Obviously, we need to get this thing done now um, on this particular thing, but then also work out going forwards, um, how can we try and manage it better? Good. Morgan, um, faced with the ever-increasing demands on their time and masses of digital information, in your view, how can in-house lawyers embrace the role technology can play in their operations? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Jinwan. So there's obviously huge value in understanding uh, the data, uh, the information generated and collected throughout the um, legal operations at a business. Uh, for example, uh, data about the number of legal requests coming in and the time it takes to solve these, um, who these requests are mo most frequently allocated to. Um, and on the other hand, you can also look at the content of the actual contract and spot frequent errors caught in certain contracts or analyze different negotiating positions and their success rates. So there's there's very a lot of information that can be sort of collected, but many businesses uh, don't yet have the reflex to adopt a data-driven approach to uh, this legal context. And so to harness the data, this data, uh, technology plays a vital role. Great. So what type of technology are we talking about here? Uh, you'll see different names. Um, legal front door has been often used, um, workflow management, uh, but we, we tend to call it under the umbrella term of demand management. So uh, in this context, these different names mean the same thing. Roughly, we're going to look at software that, uh, for one, centralizes any requests coming in uh, into the legal department, so from all over the business. Uh, you can kind of compare this to an IT ticketing system. Uh, it triages these legal requests as well based on sort of automated decisions. That's it in the software. Uh, and this is based on your team's criteria. And, and finally, you can also allocate these requests based on those criteria as well and make sure they are followed up so you have an audit trail of every single request and automatic reminders. So in terms of software, um, there are different ways um, this type of system can be set up and it all depends on the IT infrastructure of the business um, it's currently operating. But for many, many businesses, there's already some form of either workflow management tool or uh, a ticketing system that is being used in HR or IT. And uh, it, it's usually, um, I'm not going to say an easy job, but it's absolutely feasible to reconfigure this type of software and, and use just a, a separate license uh, to the legal department and plug it into the other systems being used by legal. Um, a, a tool that's frequently used across uh, many businesses is, for example, ServiceNow. And we've already had experience in reconfiguring that, for example. Um, there are also many CLM platforms, or so contract lifecycle management platforms. I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. Um, but these platforms usually already integrate this type of feature because the whole value of having a platform that managing, manages contracts is being able to collect the data from the beginning 
when the need for legal legal um, uh, contract arises. So uh, these types of platforms will generally accommodate that type of uh, feature as well. And then there are just specific workflow uh, management tools that can be um, bought as is uh, and will have some kind of legal service delivery um, aspect to them. Sounds really interesting. So how is such a system helping a business with its data digitalization? Yeah, so the really important part is that it will collect the data from the beginning that it, it, it is created. Uh, and so by recording and tracking this information, these, these legal requests, there's all sorts of management information that you're recording at the same time. So what do we mean by this information? Um, you can actively track performance and spot bottlenecks in the process quite easily. So where do requests not uh, get allocated straight away to the right uh, team? Um, how long does it take for this request to move through the legal team, etc.? And, and it also gives you a, an insight on how to mitigate um, these, these, these bottlenecks and these issues. Right. So it sounds like once you have a system to record the data in a central place, you can leverage the data in many other ways. Absolutely. So uh, you're also recording information about the legal matter itself uh, straight from the business user or the, the business requester. This means that as a lawyer, uh, you can simply check if that information matches the information that you already have in, in the legal systems rather than having to input it yourself. And you can then start leveraging this um, for um, document automation systems, etc. So this data just gets uh, straight away uh, fed into these other systems that you might be using as an in-house legal team. This can also form the basis for a clause library, for example. Um, so demand management software is therefore really key to enabling all these other parts of a fully digitalized contract lifecycle management um, process. And when we're talking contract lifecycle management, we're talking from the legal request to drafting, negotiating, approval processes, uh, signature and storage and managing of post-signature obligations of these contracts. So it's really, really powerful to have that set up as a, as a flowing, continuous uh, process. Um, so thank you very much uh, for, for those questions, Xinguan. Um, as we draw this session to an end, uh, I'm going to ask each of you uh, for one piece of advice you would give companies uh, in your jurisdiction looking at the data aspects of digitalization. Thank you, Morgan. Um, so for China, remember three most important things. Number one, cross-border data transfer. Number two, extraterritorial effects of the law. Number three, more implementation and sectoral rules are coming on the way. Data enforcement has already risen onto the top agenda of the regulators. So invest time and resources to understand it now and take actions before November the 3rd, which is the effective designate date of the new data law. It will pay off. That's for China. Over to you, David. Okay, so for the UAE, it's important to consider the multiple legal systems. One size does not fit all. Also, look out for the new data protection law for the UAE when it comes out. Thank you. And to yeah, Sasha? Maybe looking at it from a German perspective, two aspects which are connected to each other. The first aspect is that in many of the projects or the types of projects that we are talking about, we are talking about HR data. Do not forget about the Works Council. Um, it's not always just a data protection issue. In some cases, it's a collective labor law issue as well. And the second point goes really hand in hand with that issue. Um, 
start thinking about those projects in due course. I've seen many cases in which project teams started working um, and basically a few hours, a few days prior to the D-Day, they went to the legal team and asked for their input. That was not a good uh, way to deal with these projects. For in some cases, the solution is easy, but easy doesn't always mean quick. Lawrence. Thanks, Sasha. So on international transfers, the one thing I would say is you really need as a big organization to get yourself organized to do transfer impact assessments and to do them efficiently and repeatedly. Um, and just to finish the session, Lee, on that point, we, we have a product that helps clients with transfer impact assessments that, uh, that, that, that it'd be great to hear a bit more about from you, please. Yeah, thanks a lot, Lawrence. Uh, hi, all. Lee Curtis, Head of Sales here. Um, so the International Data Protection here at Simmons have developed Control Transfer, which is an online subscription-based product designed specifically in response to the SREMS2 challenge. And it's also been designed to make your international data transfer impact assessment process quick, efficient and cost-effective. So the product comprises two key components. The first is we've conducted a detailed comparative analysis of the data protection, privacy and surveillance laws in over 40 jurisdictions outside the EEA and compared these with the EU, the UK and key EU jurisdictions. We've also developed a suite of market best practice template documentation, including transfer risk assessment templates, due diligence questionnaires and guidance on supplementary measures and the new standard contractual clauses. Onboarding is really easy and we can have your team up and running inside 24 hours. For more details, head to the Solutions and Products tab on the left-hand side of your screen now. And if you haven't already, uh, please engage in the scavenger hunt to win yourself an iPad Pro. Lawrence, back to you. Thanks, Lee. That's it for us today, everybody. Thank you very much for joining the session.